people. They practice every Sunday evening just before the Sunday evening service. So if you would like to join them or bring your children to join them, it's Sunday evenings at 5.30 in the Fellowship Hall. Is it the Fellowship Hall still, Cherry, or is it, have we moved? We have now moved to the Children's Wing at 5.30. So please know you all are welcome uh, among the children to join the Children's Choir. Please take your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and our focus this morning will be on verses 21 through 31. Matthew chapter 15 this morning, looking at verses 21 through 31. We have before us a remarkable account of faith from a most unlikely source. What we have here in Matthew's gospel is a, a turning, a transition, a turning of the hinges where Jesus now moves his attention and his focus to those who are outside of Israel. So join me, Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there, and he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out. The context here is implication is continually. She won't stop. Send her away, for she continues to cry out after us. Verse 24, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Verse 29, Then Jesus departed from that place and skirted the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down, I love this, they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. The text, he healed them all, is the meaning of the original. No stone unturned. Nothing too hard for Christ. Verse 31, so the multitude marveled when they saw, notice here, the mute speaking. We've been talking about in recent weeks. You, you may not like Jesus, you may criticize Jesus, but one thing you cannot deny is the miracles of Jesus. Not even his critics do that. Here Matthew records for us that the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Well, this is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our ears and our hearts here this morning. The title of the message this morning is Great Faith. And then a subtitle is from an unlikely source. Great faith from an unlikely, a most unlikely source. 
Both the text that we will be predominantly looking at this morning, verses 21 through 28, and then the tail end, 29 through 31, both make clear that people have a very serious problem. And this problem is not only spiritual, but the emphasis here is upon the physical affliction of their friends and loved ones. This is a reality that they live with. Many of you have special needs family or friends who have different types of afflictions or just things that they were born with. Here in our immediate context, the woman has a little girl who is demon-possessed, greatly demon-possessed, greatly afflicted. Her daily reality is one of terror, one of heartache, one of brokenness as she sees a little girl made in the image of God being controlled by a demon, tormented, afflicted. Many of us, though, while we may not be able to relate to that, do know what it's like to have those that we love with some type of affliction. We see this beautiful picture that they brought them to the feet of Jesus. And I want to tell all of us here this morning, bring your burdens to the feet of Jesus. By faith, come to Jesus and rest in Him. I was thinking in my study of a sweet little lady named Patsy Wright. Patsy Wright lives now in the black belt of Alabama, out in the middle of nowhere, among where she would say, if she was here this morning, among my people. That's the way Patsy would say it. Patsy's a sweet African-American lady who grew up as a poor child up on the farms of Selma, near the area of Selma, Alabama. She moved and married and began her family, and somehow through the course of time, uh, Patsy moved to Birmingham, Alabama, more specifically Homewood, Alabama. If any of you know where Sanford University is, I ran into a man at Zaxby's the other day. He had a Sanford University shirt on. I said, Sanford, that's in Homewood. He said, my son goes there. Homewood, Alabama. Patsy is one of the sweetest ladies you would ever meet. She has a little boy named Jawan. And growing up, her daughter, uh, Wanaki, and I were there every Sunday. Nobody else may have been there, but, but Wanaki and I were there. Wanaki was the sweetest little girl you ever came across. And Wanaki's brother, Jawan, uh, I'm not sure even to this day what all his, his problems are, but he is, uh, cannot communicate. He's in a wheelchair. It just tons of, of aid and, and care are needed every day. And Patsy, his mother, is one of the sweetest ladies. And I grew up with Patsy just being there and Wanaki just being there and Jawan just being there. Sometimes you do that as a kid, don't you? You grow up in the life of the church and you don't ask the questions you need to be asking until later on. Well, when the Lord providentially led me back to my home church for ministry, I remember one of the things that I oversaw was our outreach and visitation program. And there was regular times we would go visit uh, Miss Patsy and just check in on her and, and, and Jawan. And his health was getting worse and worse. And so that would cause her to miss more than ever. And so I remember just having the conversation with her, Patsy, how did you ever come to our church? What, whatever, how did you get here? And she told me this sad but beautiful story all at the same time that she went to a church, as again, Miss Patsy would say in her language, of my people. And I would go to the church right down the street here until they asked me to quit coming. Now, don't hear what I'm saying this morning as any type of implication upon ethnic backgrounds or anything like that, but more of a gospel, a deficient gospel. The church she went to was a health and wealth gospel church. 
And she said that every time she began to walk in with Jawan, that it was like an affront to that message. They couldn't heal him. They couldn't help him. They couldn't touch him. He, he was not who they wanted coming to the church, not because of, of anything else other than the fact that she was being told, you don't have enough faith. And if you don't have enough faith, then you don't need to keep coming here. Well, over the course of time, she met people who would come pick her up and take her to their church. And so that's how she began to come to our church. Miss Patsy is one of the sweetest people you could ever meet. And as I read this concluding section, verses 29 through 31, I think of so many people, not only in Jesus' day, not only people that I have known, and maybe as I've told that brief story, people you have known. Your mind is stirred up to remembrance, and you're thinking of those whom the Lord and His, His providence is allowed to suffer through some type of gift, an angel unaware, some type of trial and testing that at times seems, in human perspectives, Strength and energy unbearable, unsustainable. Here we see our sovereign, beautiful, healing Christ causing the multitudes, in verse 31, to, to marvel. But there's much, much more happening here than healings. As we look here at our text, one thing that we find is that central to this text and central to all of the Word of God is faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please Him, coming to God, believing that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The Bible has much to say about faith. As one commentator said, that the Bible speaks of weak faith, strong faith, bold faith, rich faith, abiding faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, unfeigned faith, working faith, obedient faith and many, many other kinds. It even speaks of little faith and great faith. And what we have here in this text this morning, Matthew 15, 21 through 28, is great faith. I've said it. Many of us are prone to say at times a truth statement. It's not the size of your faith. It's the source of your faith that is most important. And while true, this woman is commended for her great faith. Literally in the Greek, mega faith. We come to a most unique text here this morning that is unique in that it shows us a side of Jesus that we're not used to seeing, as we saw last week. But yet there's more going on here than we could ever understand or even imagine. Jesus is always teaching. Jesus is always making disciples. Jesus is instructing his disciples. He's instructing the crowds. And he's instructing the individual who is engaging with him. And this morning, we'll frame our thoughts around, number one, the cry in verse 22. The confusion in verse 23. Number three, the contrast in verses 26 and 27. And then lastly, number four, the compassion that Jesus displays in verse 28. Notice with me in verse 21, by way of introduction, that that Jesus, our text tells us, that Jesus went out from there and he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If you were with us last week, we saw the engagement that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the scribes who came from Jerusalem, traveled 60 miles to ask him a dumb question, as we saw. Why do your disciples not wash their hands, essentially? Here Jesus is performing miracles. He's feeding thousands upon thousands 
And they're concerned with the outer appearance. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and lets them know, as we'll see again later on in this message, that the heart of that passage, verses 18 through 20, that the things that proceed from the mouth come from the heart. Those are the things that defile a man. Jesus has just finished engaging with these religious leaders, verse 21, and then he goes out from there and he departed. Matthew is signaling for us a change. Jesus has been intentionally trying to come apart. He's intentionally moved away from this individual, from these individuals, from this crowd to his disciples, going ahead and sending his disciples, seeking respite, seeking time for prayer. He just needs a break. We see the humanity of Christ in these ways. And yet his break time is regularly interrupted. And he does not complain. He embraces the interruptions. He continues to be poured out for the glory of God, following his Father's plans for him. But Matthew's signaling for us, verse 21, this language, and he went out from there and he departed. This is language that Matthew regularly writes to let us know that there is transition here happening in the text. And not just the obvious, he went out from there and departed. Regularly, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, he uses the same language to describe him fleeing with his family to Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, turning and going to Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed, turned into a different direction, and he went to Galilee. Most recently, Matthew 12, 15, when he was aware that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him and to destroy him, he intentionally turns and leaves. Matthew 14, verse 13, when hearing about John, he immediately departed from there. So Matthew uses this language to say not just he not only left the geographical location, but there is change here happening in the ministry of Jesus. These are strategic retreats signaling not only an immediate change, but also a change in the ministry of Christ. Almost like chapters where Matthew's recording for us segments. So he leaves, verse 21, that place, and he went out from there and he departed, and he goes to the most interesting place. It's the only time that we have recorded in Scripture where Jesus leaves Israel to go into Gentile territories, this text here this morning. Verse 21 says, He leaves the borders and the boundaries of Israel, and he departed, and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. We've heard much about Tyre and Sidon. Sidon. For example, when Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of Israel, he said, if Tyre and Sidon had heard what you had heard, and other momentous cities that are pagan cities, Gentile cities, they would have repented, they would have turned. And yet you have so much light, and you do not repent and turn to God. Here Jesus is turning and going about 25 miles, not only away, but, but up into the hills, up into Gentile territory. And to the Jews, this rings odd. Jesus is doing so many things here. This is not just Jesus taking a trip. He's preaching by where his pin drops are on the map. Jesus is communicating by where he goes. And here we find in our text that Jesus is going among the ancient enemies of Israel. Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 26, Joel 3. Amos 1, all chapters where God pronounces judgment upon these peoples. 
And this is the very peoples that Jesus goes to. Entire Old Testament chapters condemning these cities. And here we have the Lord intentionally heading into pagan territory. So our question is this. Where should Jesus have been the most likely welcomed in all of the earth? The place that Jesus should have been most likely welcomed was among his people. Israel, Nazareth, Galilee, Capernaum. And as we've been seeing week after week after week, their hearts are hardened with unbelief. They do not see him as their Messiah. They do not see him as Isaiah 53 prophesies of him and describes of him as Matthew is unveiling for them. This is your king. John 3.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into, not just the world, but he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. So Jesus is departing from there. This is judgment. This is change. This is transition. First of all, I want you to note, number one, the cry as Jesus enters into this region, verse 22, the cry that Jesus encountered. Immediately, Jesus, if there was any thought from our perspective of the narration that he's going to get a reprieve or a rest, maybe among these people, they, they won't know who Jesus is, you're wrong. Matthew, again and again, has given us texts like verses 29 through 31, these all-encompassing texts where Jesus heals and touches and feeds and blesses. And many hear about him. And word has spread previously before this text. It's obvious that this lady who comes to Jesus knows much about Jesus. What little she has received, she believes. There is much knowledge and much faith being communicated from this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman. So number one, I want you to note the cry that Jesus encountered, verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely, cruelly demon-possessed. Mark tells us in Mark 7, 24, that this is a Syrophoenician woman, more specifically. For our purposes here this morning, she's not just a Canaanite. She's just not, not only a Syrophoenician woman. We need to understand that she is a Gentile. She is not of the house of Israel. She's not of the people of Israel. This woman being a Canaanite, if you know your Bible, and if you know your biblical history, the Canaanites are not just anybody. The Canaanites are the historical enemy of Israel. You remember back in the book of Exodus as God delivers his people from, from Pharaoh in Egypt. He delivers them to the promised land where the Canaanites, the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites are the native inhabitants. And God instructed Israel to eradicate them from the land. This is a wicked people. This is a godless people. This is a people where we're not going to spend our time this morning, where in their history, unpacking their sins and why a holy God would tell his people to eradicate them from the land. But we need to understand that God is holy and all that he does is holy. The judge of all the earth can only do that which is right. And he is instructing his people to remove this rebellious people. This people who sacrifices their children to false idols. And many other horrendous sins, blaspheming their maker, God. 
instructs his people to eradicate them from the land. And Israel's not obedient in that. They do not ever in their history fully eradicate the Canaanites from the land. In fact, Genesis chapter 24, verse 3, Abraham said to his servant, Eliezer, when he says, I want you to go find a bride for my son Isaac. Abraham said to his servant, Swear to me, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but that you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife for my son Isaac. As Jesus goes into this pagan territory, as he experiences this cry of this Canaanite woman, we hear ringing in the background, Deuteronomy 2017, as he speaks to the children of Israel, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done before their gods, and that you should sin against the Lord. Let me just kind of give a comment here. Many people, even Christians today, don't know what to do with this. It's really quite simple. God is a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. And whether God decides to judge us outside of Christ, if we are outside of Christ, in a very moment, which, by the way, he has done all throughout time, immediate judgment upon those who, who blaspheme his name. If he decides to bring immediate and swift judgment in the here and now, that is his right. And Christian, brother, sister in Christ, you do not have to defend God. You do not have to come to the scriptures and try to say, well, that's actually not what, what it says. Listen, try to explain how the God of the Old Testament is different than the God, of the God of the New Testament. Not at all. What we need to do is bow. We bow before the word of God. And if God chooses not to bring swift and immediate judgment to America or the Canaanites or any nation for their sin, and he decides to wait until the day of judgment, then it's all mercy and grace. But hear the word of the Lord this morning. If you are outside of Christ, don't stand in judgment upon God who orders his Old Testament people to get rid of an abominable people that sacrifices their children to idols. Listen, run to God while there's hope. For you live in a land that sacrifices its children through abortion. Listen, we come to Scripture and we bow. And we say, God, we have no idea why you've shown mercy and favor to America. But we know that you are a just God. And at some point, judgment is coming. If you would judge Sodom and Gomorrah the way you've judged Sodom and Gomorrah, you are the God who can do the same to America today. And apart from revival, we have no hope. Apart from the work of the reviving work of the Holy Spirit returning us to the Lord, we have no hope. Just an aside, don't struggle, bow. Don't blame, bow. Don't stutter, bow. So many Christians just start namby-pambying around when an unbeliever, and I'm not mocking an unbeliever, when someone, as Paul describes, cannot understand the spiritual things of God, don't expect them to. Run to the gospel. Run to the heart of the matter. Run to the law. Run to the law that shows us our need of Christ. Use the means that God's ordained to help us to be awakened to our need for the gospel. The Canaanites were supposed to be removed from the land, but Israel never fully obeyed the Lord in doing that. Here we find in our text that Jesus goes into this region 
to put his salvific glory on display. There is something more happening here. Verses 1 through 21 in Matthew 15, the very top, the cream of the crop, the upper echelon of Israel has come to grill and to instruct Jesus, and they are blind to his glory. They are deaf to his claims. And in great contrast to that, in verse 22, the most unlikely source of glory and praise and display of faith comes through a Gentile, as Jesus will call her, we'll get to it in a minute, dog. A Canaanite woman. She gives great glory to God. This woman is changed. This woman is witty. This woman is passionate. This woman is emotional. This woman engages Jesus. She's not namby-pamby like so many people are today. The first slight, she, she doesn't turn away and say, oh, well, no, this woman pleads with Jesus. This woman is persistent with Jesus. This woman is witty. She comes back with Jesus and engages him, as we'll see. All of it purposefully being done by Christ to teach, to instruct, to test, to sanctify. And I want to say this before we continue on. Do not look at texts like these with our Americanized eyes. We have to stop. We have to zoom out. We have to enter into the first century mindset, the language, the talk, the ways, the cultures, and then simply just bow before inspired Scripture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, talking about this parallel of those who should have known better, confessing that Jesus is the Christ and did not. And here in our text this morning, in verse 22, the most unlikely source of praise and salvation and belief comes from the least of these. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Turn there with me just briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I just want to remind all of us this morning as we see this portrait of Christ that, that we are those who are foolishness to the world. Why are we so surprised when the world does not esteem us? We're not looking for that. Paul writes, he says, For the message of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are, being, who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice here, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Look at Israel. Look at Matthew 15, 1-21. And what you have is God bringing to nothing. They're blind guides. The wise, the prudent. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe, Paul says? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe like Canaanite women here in Matthew 15, verse 22. God delights in saving the most unlikely of people. God delights in shocking us at who he welcomes to the table. This does not violate his truth. It does not violate his grace. It's the display and glory of his truth and his grace. And church families, we'll see, just when we think we have it all figured out, God delights to confound the wise. And you say, wait a second, I thought we were people of the truth. Well, we are, but oftentimes in our minds, we, get it, we think we get it all figured out. We don't see people as God sees them. We see them as we see them. 
We see people thinking we know who will come to God and who won't. And you may not be a hyper-Calvinist, but you act like one in who you do and don't share the gospel with and to. We begin to get foolish in our thinking. We begin to get foolish in our minds. And it delights God. The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, as we'll see next week. For the Jews request a sign. Just go ahead and, and look at the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. Actually, don't. I'll read it to you because I know you're, you're not there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus requesting a sign. That's what Paul says. The Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Church, hear the word of the Lord. For you see your calling, church, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31. So that it is written, let him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Israel is not glorying in the Lord. The scribes and the Pharisees are not glorying in the Lord. They are violating the law. They're violating the word of God. Jesus has just rebuked them and saying, why do you violate my word? Why do you transgress the commandment? Why do you add law upon law upon law upon the law and thereby devaluing the law and esteem your word higher than my truth? So as we come to our text, coming back to Matthew chapter 15, the question here is, it's not just who it is crying out to Jesus. It's also what she's saying. Because what she's confessing and what she is saying, Israel isn't saying. And Israel isn't confessing. Verse 21, this is a confessional statement. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Curios, O Son of David. She, she is confessing who he is. She's confessing that Christ is who he says he is. She's agreeing with Matthew. As Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. She has a people too. And her people go all the way back, just like the Jews go all the way back. And I don't know what all this woman's knowledge is and was, but one thing we know, she's able to see like Rahab of old, that's the God, the true God, the only God. And I want to worship that God. I need that God. I need deliverance. I, my daughter needs him. But whether he does or doesn't, have mercy. Jesus, thou son of David. This is a confessional statement. My daughter is severely, verse 21, Matthew 15, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. This word daughter means little girl. Sometimes we wonder, is this an older girl? Is this a teenage girl? The, the idea here in the text is that she's very small. We don't understand 
how this happened, how this came to be. All we know is that she lives in a living hell every day. We know from other passages where a father has come to Jesus saying, help me. My son is literally hurting himself. He's throwing himself in the fire. He hurts himself physically. We don't know all the details of what is happening here. All we know is this woman is distraught. And Jesus is her only hope. Secondly, verse 23, the confusion that Jesus evokes. Admittedly, this is not the Jesus that we've been seeing. And so we have to understand that we have to ask this question. What is he doing here? This does not seem to be like the Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10, where he looks upon his people and, and weeps for them. And he tells them, come to me, take my, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It doesn't seem as if he's doing that here. So secondly, the confusion that Jesus evokes. Notice here verse 23 of our text. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, picking up on this. You know, oftentimes people read our, our body language. Body language is, experts say, 80 to 90% nonverbal. Here the disciples are setting the scene. They're watching. They're perceiving. Oh, good. He's annoyed by her too. So they come to him and say, urged him to send her away for she cries out after us like he doesn't know that on the surface level we will admit that people struggle with this text but i want us to be clear that jesus and we, we've seen his heart don't question the heart of the savior he's not being cruel but what is clear is he intentionally ignores her for a moment for a moment he's testing her he's testing her faith he's using her as a a, a lesson to all who hear, to all who witness, even to us extended here today, we're learning from this scenario. After all, he's refused. When the disciples pled for him to send her away, he does not send her away. Instead, he uses this encounter as a teaching opportunity, verse 24. But he answered and he said, seemingly here in the text, both to her but more to his disciples, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of Israel. So, so what is Jesus saying here? What is taking place here in our text? Well, I want us to notice number three, the contrast as we move into verses 26 and 27. Here Jesus says, as we just saw, verse 24, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but this woman is not deterred. She comes and she worships him, saying, Lord, help me. She's persistent. She's patient. She does not give up. I want us to notice now the contrast, verse 26 and 27. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. So I want to explain for a second what, what Jesus is saying here. This is common language. This is vernacular that the Jews regularly used. As the Jews referred to Gentiles, outsiders regularly. In their vernacular as dogs. But that's not the way Jesus is using it here. This is not just any dog. So you may be hearing me this morning and saying, well, he still said dogs. Well, just understand what he's saying. Here Jesus is invoking a family scene, a setting, 
There's a family here at the table. There's a father, there's a mother. The father is breaking the bread like Jesus broke the bread in, in, in the wilderness feeding the thousands. And then this is the family pet. There, there is a family pet off to the side, loved and nurtured. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a priority here in this structure. The father is going to feed the children first. The father is going to provide for his spouse first. And then anything that's left over may be for the domesticated animals. That's what Jesus is saying. This woman is not offended, by the way. We're offended, but she's not offended. She gets it. She understands who God is. She understands who Jesus, the son of David, is, the Messiah is. She understands the Jewish context here. And she understands who she is. We see the context, the contrast here. And we ask, what does Jesus mean by this? In verse 5, in chapter 10, verse 5, when Jesus sent out his disciples on mission, we saw that he gave them very specific instruction not to go into the way or the region of the Gentiles. Don't misunderstand this. Christ did not forbid them to not preach to Gentiles or Samaritans or Canaanites. But specifically, he gave them a very narrow missional focus. They were to stay on task. If they were to preach and preach, they could not exhaust the the job that God gave them to do. But the scripture is clear that God chose Israel to be his beloved people. Israel is the beloved of God. They are the apple of his eye. They are his people. He tells in the Old Testament, Israel only have I known and loved. In other words, I've set my peculiar love, electing love, upon this people beginning with Abraham. Why did God do this? Well, friends, listen, we don't get the answer to to the why questions. We just simply know that he has. And by the way, we here this morning, as probably predominantly Gentiles, praise God that he has. So we'll see the Abrahamic covenant in just a moment. But here we find that God has set his love upon a people. Israel, not the greatest, not the mightiest but the least of these, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for, for everyone who believes. Notice here, for the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here's what Jesus is saying here. Israel, in my ministry, up until this point, Israel must know that their Messiah is here. Israel must know that the bread of life is here. Israel must know that the way, the truth, and the life is here. Israel must be fed before the dogs. Israel must be fed. The family around the table must be fed before there's any overflow among the nations. And I'm glad to announce to you this morning that there is much overflow to the nations. There is an abundance in Jesus Christ to the nations, to the tribes, and to the least of these, which we find ourselves among this morning. Here Christ uses this word to set a scene, to set a picture. And notice this woman's resolve, or we would say resilience, verse 27. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This is astounding. Her response time, it's as if as she hears that Jesus is coming, he's in the region, she's walking, and she's thinking, what am I going to say to him when I get to it? 
she does a much better job than the scribes and the Pharisees do in the previous passage. What am I going to say to him? The Jews say we are but dogs. We, we are outside of the fellowship of God. What is there for me? What hope is there for me? She knows this. And as soon as Jesus invokes this, she says, yes, but even the domesticated, beloved family pets get to come and to eat of the scraps of the goodness of the master. They get to come and to eat their full and to be full of the grace that is found in God. This response is astounding. It comes from a Canaanite woman. This response comes in the black, dark backdrop of unbelief and hardened heart. Those who have the most light are showing the most darkness. And here, one who's had the least light is showing the greatest confession of faith, one of the greatest up until this point. It makes, here's the point, here's the thing, it makes no sense. If you come to this text in an academic way, as so many commentators do, it's just stupid. They stumble and bumble. They, they miss the point. This is the glory of God on display. This is God humbling the wise. This is God lifting up the downtrodden. This is God being glorified by confounding all the natural ways of man. And here this woman has heard. Here this woman believes. Her response reveals a heart of belief and a head of understanding. Back in the previous verses, verse 16, Jesus says to the leaders, remember he says, Are you also still without understanding? All you do is study the law. All you do is write it out. All you do, well, you used to. That's what you're supposed to do. Now you're consumed with your own writings. Verse 17, do you not know that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is expelled? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. But notice that phrase, verse 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth. That's the negative. What's the positive? Also reveal the heart of faith or what you're resting in or what you believe in. What does she believe in? This woman's heart, it, it reveals something. It reveals a heart of faith, belief. This woman has not been up close to Jesus. She's only heard. She's only heard the stories. She's only, and I'm assuming here, you think about being a Canaanite, she's only heard about that God of Israel, what he did to her people, and what he told his people to do to her people way back in the past. And yet this Gentile woman actually recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Here she is a spiritual babe, a child among the people saying, the emperor has no clothes. She's calling out the darkness and the blindness of Israel. And here, with such limited knowledge, a faith that comes from being afar, she expresses what Paul describes in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, just briefly. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It's important that we do this. Very important. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the call of God coming to Abraham. It's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And this is where we find the hope of the gospel, the good news. 
as God continues to unveil to his people his purposes, his redemptive plan for all time. Genesis 12, 1-3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Notice here. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why are we so full of joy this morning? Why do we have the hope of the gospel and good news this morning? Well, we find it in that little clause. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This gospel which was first preached unto Abraham, and he believed, and it was Romans 5, it was accounted unto him unto righteousness, friends, is extended to us even here this morning. The key statement here is, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. There are those in Israel, in this text, in this context, who are cursing Christ, plotting his demise, and they're sealing their fate. They're hardening their hearts. And just like God said of Pharaoh, you've hardened your heart. Now I will raise you up for my glory in the display of my justice. Here we see that this woman, though, hears, responds to the little light she's been given, and she is blessed. In fact, we'd say it like this. She's one of only two people praised in the book of Matthew up until this point for their faith. She's one of two. The previous one that we looked at was in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And both of these, she's one of two, and both of these two are Gentiles. Are Gentiles. What we see here is you say, what's your point? Here's the point. The kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is extended to not only Israel. Israel, your king is here. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their, their sins. But his people includes more than just Israel. Your king is here. But your king is here for you, Canaanite woman. And he's here for you, people of Israel. A light to shine, a light as was prophesied for the Gentiles. Then verse 28, so much more. We're not doing it justice. Verse 28, we see the compassion of Christ displayed. This Jesus that we, we, we're not used to, that we don't recognize, how does he respond to her? Verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, mega is your faith. Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you have said, as you wish, as you desire. And her daughter was healed in the same way as the other Gentile that we just pointed to in Matthew chapter 8, that very same hour. Friends here, what we have is an amazing text. It's an amazing miracle. It is full of hope and good news. Good news to everyone there that day and good news for all of us here even this morning. We've looked at the text. Now for the next few moments as we conclude, let's look at some application points to ponder. I want to remind all of us Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently 
seek Him. This text before us this morning is a master class on faith. A master class. How are you in your faith? Look to Jesus. I would exhort you and point you this morning. Look to Jesus. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. The first thing I want us to see is that this text is a master class on faith and the demonstration of it. This woman recognizes who God is. She accepts His absolute authority, calls Him Lord multiple times. She accepts His complete ability. She persists in prayer and persists in calling out to Him. She's serious about seeking Him and what she's asking of Him, relief for her daughter. She's totally committed to the will of God. She's like laser-like focus. As we compare ourselves, how many of us have given up? How many of us have given up on whatever it is that we are, we've been seeking God for and on? There are needs that we have in our marriage. There are needs that we have in our families. There are circumstances that God has allowed us to providentially undertake and, and experience and to go through, but we've just lost hope. We've given up. Let this woman encourage you this morning as she looks to Christ. You follow her gaze, follow her pattern, and return again to Christ calling upon his name. Behold her great faith. Secondly, just an observation, is that it's possible, when we look at the whole of Matthew chapter 15, what we see is that it is possible to have less knowledge and greater faith. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not minimizing truth. I'm not minimizing what we're doing here this morning. I'm not saying we need to lighten up and have more fun in games. I'm not saying that we just need to... I'm not saying anything like that. But what I am saying is, according to this text, we regularly stand... I don't know, condemned. There are so many beautiful things about a church like Grace Church is that we value the truth. We're here for the truth. We want the Word of God. We love the Word of God. It's changed us. It's saved us. It's our passion. It's what we hunger for. We hunger and thirst by God's grace after righteousness. But sometimes things can become rote. They can become repetitive. We can become kind of stilted in our thinking. We who are exposed to so much truth and so much knowledge and have access to it through midweek Bible studies and Sunday school classes and smaller group sessions and men's breakfasts and ladies' fellowships and the morning worship service and evening worship service. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. None of those things are bad. But what we need is to stay fresh. And that begins with me right here, making sure I'm bringing fresh bread for you. But what we see here in this text is that it's possible to not have as much truth but have greater faith. Here, here's what I'm saying. Those of us who hear it and see it week after week, it might just be that at the gas station pump this week, you're dealing with a struggling sinner or you engage with someone who's had a difficult trial in life. And the Lord will use them to convict you who are exposed so much and good and rightfully so. You've grown hardened, if you can describe it like that, gospel-hardened. Lest we become like those compared to the leaders of Israel. May we be those, Grace. So we say, what's your point? Here's my point. May God bless us with a tenderness and a softness here. A gospel tenderness and a gospel softness. A culture of grace that hasn't discovered it all, known it all, but loves the truth, consistent to the truth, and is faithful to the truth. Because whom the Lord gives much responsibility, he requires much of. 
And friends, he has given us much. Much. And so the point is that we stay soft, we stay fervent, we have the heart of Christ, the eyes of Christ. We both hold his truth in one hand and that the love of Christ and the love of that is fully poured out on the other hand. And that when we see the Canaanite women of this world, we see a woman who needs Jesus. And we love her. And we say, I want to introduce you to Christ. We, we don't see her as the Canaanite woman. We see her as an immortal soul that Jesus is calling and desires to reach through us. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This woman was not put to shame. She confessed what, her, what the reality of her heart was. For with her heart she believed, and it was unto righteousness. And with her mouth confession was made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here this morning, it matters not what your parents did or who you are or, or what your family's story is or any of that. The only thing that matters is whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I would exhort you this morning to not think about anything else but to set your eyes upon Christ and to run to Him. Obey the light and the truth of what you know. And when you do that, light obeyed means more light given. By God and his word. He will bless you. John 4. He is looking for those to worship him in spirit and in truth. But thirdly, church family, we need to be reminded that the harvest fields are ripe unto harvest. The problem is not the harvest fields. The problem is the laborers. Jesus tells his disciples, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Can I just be pastoral here this morning? God has blessed Grace Church. And in the last two or three years, he's blessed Grace Church with not only ministry right here, but he has blessed Grace Church with ministry here and here and here and here. And God has grown our church. And so people have stepped in and said, I can do that. And I can do that. And yes, I can do that. And I can do that. But we're in a season now where we're starting Adventure Club. And we're trying to strengthen the things that are here and that remain. And I just want you to know that even as God adds people to our church family, listen, we, we, we need to focus on not only being faithful to the harvest field that is here, but also the harvest field that is there. And we've got some ministries that are, we're involved in that we're having to tell the next couple of weeks, thank you for the opportunity. It's not that we don't desire, but the greater part of our attention, we need, we need to shore it up back home, which is here. In classes and in teaching times and other things. And so we're going to be, have to, it's seasons in ministry where we have to say, thank you for the opportunity, but we no longer can continue in that. And as a pastor, can I just be honest with you? I hate that. I don't like that. But I, I'm not God. And so we have to say, God, would you give us a spirit and a desire to want to serve and to want to go? And so I'm talking to people that right now, you may have been praying and thinking about helping in the jail ministry and helping in celebrate recovery and helping in adventure club and helping in this and you're just waiting for the right time and i want to tell you the times now as we see our lord and savior jesus christ he's looking for reprieve folks 
He's constantly looking for a break. He's looking for just intimacy with the Father. And here's the thing. He, he's not getting it. And he will go to the cross not even looking like a man because he's poured out, obviously physically afflicted, obviously beaten and put to shame. We get all that. But just, just, just listen. Jesus is not our example for, for the life of ease. And so God has things in store for us, not only now, but also in the future. But I'm just going to quote again, Matthew 9, 37. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray, as we do. Why pray for Indonesia this morning? Why pray for Asia? That ain't here. It's not Roan County. Well, we're interested in Roan County. We're involved in Roan County. We're asking the Lord to use us in Roan County, both here and abroad. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field because there's Canaanite women all over the place who need the gospel. Canaanite standing for a metaphor for the lost. You get, you get what I'm saying here. Now, this text is profound, and it speaks to us right where we're at even here this morning. Fourthly, the fact that the harvest fields are ripe is closely connected to the truth. And we'll conclude with this, that God has a divine plan, and that plan is, is global. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is it, church. This is who we are. This is our mission statement. And every ministry we have that I've just named for you, that's what it's about. We connect it and say, here's an opportunity as the elders of our church, we say, okay, here's an open door. How does this help us fulfill this? How does this ministry opportunity help us fulfill making disciples of the nations and teaching them all things whatsoever he has commanded you? As so a church family, as we leave this morning, I want to exhort you to seek God's face as we think about this text is not just for a, a Canaanite woman. It's for us to reach the lost even today. And so may the Lord raise up laborers for his harvest field. And I'm delighted to say we're about to close the service this morning and we're going to go downstairs and the workers that are involved in Adventure Club, we're going to get together and we're going to pray and we're going to say, here's the plan, here's the structure, here's what's happening. But don't, don't lose sight of what, it, what it's all about. We're not just busy here. We're not just doing this because this is what we do on Wednesday night. no. May God continue to save the lost among us. May he, as we'll see in two weeks, continue to build his church, which the gates of hell will not prevail against it. May the Lord bless it to us. In Christ's name we pray. Father, we love you. We come before you, and we thank you for your word. Father, it, it, it assaults us. I, I was astounded this week at how, how this hits me this hits us right where we're at this week meetings that we've had and leadership and ministry workers and, and and working through things and then coming to this text this morning and this is the message for the hour where you're at work and we rest in this and we follow you now's not the time for for games time is short father there's an urgency here what a privilege it is to serve for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would you help us to make every day count for Christ? Would you give us a sense of urgency as we think about seeing people as, as you see them, taking that entrusted gospel, the entrusted word, 
and giving it to the lost and preaching your name. Father, would you continue to build your church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.